afternoon, Jeff. How are you doing? Good afternoon, are Celeste. Sure? Are we sure that mic is on? Good afternoon and welcome to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You're listening to Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz here with Jeff Simmons. Good afternoon, Celeste. Good to be here with you. And uh, we have a good show lined up for today. Pretty exciting. A lot of good guests, uh, including one I'm really looking forward to, somebody I've known for a long time that has some uh, a new book out that I think is going to be very, very interesting to our listeners here at BAI. And you know we like political books on this show. Love them. <laughs> so there's a lot going on in politics. I know you're going to talk about some of this tomorrow morning, so we won't do that today because you are going to be on the 6 a.m. tomorrow. Yes, I am. Uh, but, you know, a lot of breaking news today, the uh, news on the death penalty front, news ongoing across the country regarding pro-life versus pro-choice. Right, and we're going to be getting into a little bit of that later in the program, but that is uh, quite notable about uh, New Hampshire becoming the 21st state to abolish the death penalty, state lawmakers uh, overriding a veto by the governor there to make that happen. And being the last uh, state in New England to do so. Right. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing uh, that it's uh, taken quite this long for that to happen. You would have thought it uh, might have happened a little earlier, but uh, big news there for a lot of people who have been fighting the death penalty for uh, quite a long time who say that it, it is just, uh, it is not a deterrent for one thing, and secondly, that just too many people who are later uh, proven to be innocent, uh, or excuse me, uh, proven not guilty. There's a difference between innocent and not mm -hmm. guilty. We've been through that with our president uh, <laughs> recently, and in a very, in a very different, uh, in a very different uh, course of events there. But uh, very interesting, also that this is a, an achievement for people who say that the death penalty is is doled out in a racially disparate mm -hmm. and unfair way. Mm -hmm. And what we're also seeing on the abortion front is what is going on in a number of the states, including, uh, and we're going to be having this conversation with our second guest, but including the recent, most recent developments like hour by hour in Missouri, uh, awaiting tomorrow's decision by the governor, which could shut down the only abortion clinic in the state. And there are, what, six states right now, including Missouri, that have just one abortion clinic in the entire state. Which is really amazing if you think about it. And I think that Look, there are definitely people on both sides of that issue, and uh, there are people who also feel that they want to sort of stay out of it in a, a from, a, from a sort of libertarian standpoint, you might say. People who say, look, if that is your choice, then that is okay, but I prefer not to be involved in it uh, financially or otherwise, you know, sort of tacitly, uh, tacitly 
supporting it uh, financially, but that's why we have the Hyde Amendment, right? That's mm-hmm. why we have laws that separate uh, the use of federal funding for abortion procedures versus other wellness procedures uh, and sexual uh, STD screenings and so on. So two kind of very different issues there, but definitely uh, sort of clashing right now uh, in terms of what's going on in places like Missouri. Agreed. And so we're going to get to that in uh, about, what, 15, 20 minutes after our first guest. But before we do that, you know what I want to talk about. Because I do. we were just, before we came on the show, we were sitting right down the hall in the studio. And I feel like it's looking better a little by little. But, you know, there's still work to be done. And Andrea has let Andrea from WBAI let us know that the More Than Mike's campaign has been steadily getting a little more contributions. We're less than $2,500 now away from that goal of 10000 Great, great. So if you are interested in supporting independent, non-commercial, non-corporate radio, please give us a call right now. Please don't wait. Here's the number, 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Ask for the More Than Mike's campaign. It just takes a couple of minutes. You can even do it online. Just go to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org, or text WBAI to 41444 on your smartphone. And we're just looking for 200 listeners, not just from during this show, but throughout, you know, the 24 hours, th- uh, 36, 72 hours. You know, we really want the fun drive ends on uh, June 2nd, on June 2nd, on uh, Sunday. And we would really like to see 200 people donate $50 each uh, to help us reach that goal of $10,000. And also, uh, and you're going to divulge the details on this shortly, but if you also do call d- in during this show to donate at 516-620-3602. There is one specific gift that you can get today that Celeste has secured, and she'll talk about that during the show. I am going to do that, but just remember, <laughs> you have you have an array of choices when you donate, when you make the decision to support WBAI and keep our news and public affairs and music and cultural programming on the air by giving us a call at 516 516- Again, 516-620-3602. You don't just get whatever we send you. You know, we, we are all about choice here. So there... Uh, there's an array of different thank you gifts that are available. We have a lot of cool stuff with the WBAI logo. I, myself, I, I'm a tote bag girl. I have the tote bag. Uh, a number of people I know have the tote bag, and it's a good one. But we have caps. We have mugs. We have t-shirts. We have a bunch of different stuff. So you can actually physically wear your support for independent commercial free radio. It doesn't have to be a lot of money. You can give a recurring monthly donation in any amount you choose. That's what I do. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that's what I do too. So please consider giving your support 516-620- 3602 516-620-3602. And speaking of that new studio, if you contribute $50 to our More Than Mike's campaign, which if you think about it, split it up every day over the course of a month or a year, 50 bucks, not that much, may sound like a lot, but divide it up over time. What do you spend on coffee? What do you spend on snacks? What do you spend on, you know, stuff that a, a newspaper every day, whatever it may be. 
for $50, you could win the chance to see the new studio that you helped us build. And not only that, you can be there during a live broadcast of your favorite show. So please help us out right now. Please don't wait. 516-620-3602. And you're going to be heartbroken if the person who wins this does not choose driving forces. I don't really think that's going to happen. I feel like in the in the in the grand scheme of things in the in the vast constellation of possibilities most people would choose driving forces the listener should know that that being in the same room with Celeste and Jeff is a life-changing experience <laughs> <laughs> if you want to find out how very true that is 516-620-3602 or just go to wbai.org so we're going to take calls after our second guest on some of the issues we've discussed today. But now Tote Bag Girl is going to introduce our first guest. Yeah, that's me. So I'm Tote Bag Girl here for WBAI New York. And we are very, very proud to be joined by somebody that I've known for a long time and whose work I have admired for a long time. We're glad to welcome to the program Ian Rafowitz. He's a professor of historical studies at SUNY's Empire State College. Now, his previous book was called Obama's America, a transformative vision of our national identity, but we have him here today, fortunately, to talk about his brand new book, and this one's called The Tribalization of Politics, How Rush Limbaugh's Race-Baiting Rhetoric on the Obama Presidency Paved the Way for Trump. So, Ian, welcome to the program. Thanks, Celeste. It's great to be here with you, and you're very, very kind. I appreciate your wonderful and warm introduction. Oh, don't call me kind until we get to the questions. Right? <laughs> just, ah. <laughs> just kidding. No, no, but I'm very excited. And by the way, it's a good book. I seriously am. Uh, I've enjoyed it, checking it out. And I've read your other work before, but this is something really different. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, sort of what was it that gave you the idea? What, what made you say to yourself, somebody has got to write this. Somebody has to connect these dots here. Ah, so the old how to, uh, the old how did it, how did it happen question. Correct. Um, well, you know, there was a, a point in the summer of 2015 where I was thinking about, about doing another book, uh, and I decided that it would be, um, I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to, to look you know, forward um, in terms of where the country was going. I had written about, the Obama, about Obama's ideas, and um, part of that book included a section about uh, people like Limbaugh and others on the right who had criticized Obama or attacked Obama for his uh, inclusive concept of American national identity. So I wanted to, so it sort of came to me that I could, maybe I could take Limbaugh as sort of like a source base and, and look at his idea, uh, look at his rhetoric on the Obama presidency in a comprehensive way and then maybe see where that would take us. Now, in the summer of 2015, I did not necessarily think that was going to take us to President Trump. I don't think that many of us saw that in, in, the, you know, in July of August of 2015, in the first few weeks after he announced. Um, and so I started doing the research, and then as the election got closer and then after he uh, uh, was elected, I, I began to think about how to take this sort of idea of looking at Limbaugh's you know, coverage, so to speak, of the Obama presidency, and then try to move it forward and, and, and to, like you say, connect those dots for how it, how it led to the election of of Donald Trump, and I'm happy to go into that a bit more if you like. Yeah, and uh, we are going to ask you about that, but before we do, just one question how much Rush Limbaugh did you have to listen to to do this book? <laughs> well, I'm going to give you a trick answer. None. And that's because he provided, thankfully, transcripts, which I was able to read without having to listen to him uh, uh, with my ears. I was just able to read it. But, but uh, his RushLimbaugh.com, you can get uh, the transcript of every Rush Limbaugh show. And I read them, and I read them all. 
<laughs> so how many years do you think not having to actually listen to the programs may have added to your life? Uh, a lot, a lot. <laughs> enough, enough that I will be able to make it to the end of the Trump presidency, I'm pretty hopeful. So as, as much as, you know, he was uh, vehemently Trump uh, in Trump's camp, uh, he still continues to attack Hillary Clinton. Why not just, you know, let that go? Well, why, why, why does Donald Trump not let that go? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, uh, and the funny thing is, you know, and I wasn't focused on what, what Limbaugh was saying about Trump throughout the Obama presidency. He was pretty lukewarm about Trump. He didn't really see him as particularly conservative or particularly Republican, uh, you know, in 2000. 11 or 12, when, he, when Trump was flirting with the president, he was happy to have him on as a guest. But then once Trump you know, emerged as a, as a major player in the primary, he certainly stopped saying anything nasty about him. And when he became the nominee, that was all, all Limbaugh really needed to, to see in order to get behind him. Uh, 100%. So in the you use a very specific phrase in the title of the book, the tribalization of politics. And you talk about race baiting and you talk about something else that you call racial priming, which is a, your way of describing how Rush Limbaugh sort of paints this picture of Obama in a way that made Donald Trump much more palatable, maybe even possible as far as American politics go. So how, do, how does... Translate that out a little bit for us. Sure, sure. Uh, all right, so uh, tribalization, right? It's, you know, it's really something more than just talking about uh, ideas in a partisan way. Uh, it's not just you know, convincing people to vote Republican, for example, because you, you, know, you share some, some kind of policy preferences. It's really about cleaving the American population in two and, and really separating us into tribes in a sense that there is this visceral... And, and tribes, of course, is a word that has a lot of, a, a lot of uh, historical connotations, that I'm, which I'm, you know, we'll leave out for now. But in terms of politics, it's about creating this sort of visceral div, uh, division. In, in Limbaugh's case, really treated, creating a conservative tribe. And, and yes, it's animated by political ideology, but it's, it's much more about racial and cultural resentment that really feeds hatred of the opposing tribe. And that's what Limbaugh was trying to do when he was talking about President Obama. And... and to achieve that goal, this idea, this this tactic of, he used of racial priming, which is really an, uh, a term from from academia, uh, it's an, it's just another really another way of saying race baiting. It's another way of of talking about uh, racial issues in a way that uh, um, heightens fear, heightens anxiety, heightens hatred. Um, and so, if you're you know if you're talking about uh, racial priming, really you know you're talking about something that is uh, about about work, getting people worked up about hatred, um, and and and, and that's something that that Limbaugh has no qualms about doing. Um, if you you know, there's a, a, all kinds of research in, in social science that um, demonstrates the effect of racial priming. If I could quote Dylan Matthews, uh, who writes at Vox, uh, he taught he he said at one uh, he looked at. Uh, at social science research, and he found that, that, quote, you know, priming white people to so much as think about race, even subconsciously, pushes them towards racially regressive views. And that's really what we see Limbaugh doing. In the book, I did, you know, look at, at academic research, and there was a ton of data that showed that uh, 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 white racial resentment became much more correlated, A, with voting Republican, in the last 10 or, uh, 10 or 12 years than it had been previously. And then within the Republican primary voting process, 
those who were uh, whites who, who expressed racial resentment were much more likely to vote for Trump than for the other candidates. That's what Limbaugh, even if he wasn't thinking about Trump when he started doing this in 2009, that's, what, that's the effect of what Limbaugh was doing with this racial priming. He was uh, uh, trying to, to play on people's fears. Well, Trump saw that that was working. We know that Trump listened to, to talk radio. We looked at, at the impact of, of radio's rhetoric, especially around immigration, and, and he saw that this was something that played well with uh, Republican primary voters, and he ran with it. And in fact, in the book, you say, you know, white anxiety finds a home, which is a line that stood out for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and Trump saw this. Trump saw this. Uh, he, you know, I mean, we could, I could give you a couple of examples if you want. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a long book, and I don't want to go into, into too much, but, um, you know, there is the examples... There's an example from uh, that relates to immigration. Uh, you may remember that there was a woman named uh, Kate Steinle who was uh, killed in San Francisco by an undocumented yeah. immigrant, right? Who had a, he had a criminal record. Uh, Trump was all over this on the campaign trail. Referred to her right? frequently as beautiful Kate, beautiful Kate yes. Steinle. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and Limbaugh did the same thing. In some ways, they were they were almost paralleling each other. Uh, Limbaugh talked about. Uh, President Obama's reaction, or not, or in relation to to this uh, poor woman's death, you know, he he said, well, you know, Kate Steinle's name would never be as well known as Trayvon Martin, which of course is you know associating President Obama, who, who talked quite openly about his reaction to to Trayvon Obama, uh, to Trayvon Martin's death. He said, you know, Limbaugh said, oh, Obama won't deliver a eulogy at Kate Steinle's funeral, even though Obama had, of course, not delivered a eulogy at Trayvon Martin. Uh, but had, in fact, delivered a eulogy at the, the memorial service for, for Dallas police officers who were murdered uh, in, a, in, one of, in a, um, re, a response, to, so to, you know, to some degree, a response to some of this violence between police and, and African-Americans. Limbaugh was all over this. He, talked, he brought up Jeremiah Wright when he was talking about Kate Steinle. Uh, he said Obama hated America, wanted to alter its composition in order to change the face of the country. And this is the kind of fear of demographic change relating to Obama that, that Limbaugh is talking about uh, over and over again. Um, you know, I, I just you know to to give you some examples from the media. Uh, you know, one of my favorite commentators is Jamel Bowie, who I think does a really nice job of of looking at racial issues. And here's what he said about Limbaugh and Obama. He said, "You can draw a direct line to the rise of Trump from the racial hysteria of talk radio, where Rush Limbaugh, a Trump booster." warned that Obama would turn the world upside down. And when I saw that quote, I said, that's exactly the connection that I want to emphasize and that I want to go into in detail, to really to document, so that we can do more than just say, oh, this connection exists. I wanted to provide evidence for that. I wanted to, to, to check the record and go through those, those Limbaugh transcripts. And, and I hope that's what I've uh, been able to accomplish here. If you're just joining us, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz here with Jeff Simmons. And we're talking to Ian Rafowitz about his new book about uh, the tribalization of politics, how Rush Limbaugh's race-baiting rhetoric on the Obama presidency paved the way for Trump. And Ian, one of the things that I found was sort of startling and interesting that I wanted to ask you about when I was reading the book is the way you describe in some detail the idea that one of the tactics that Rush Limbaugh uses here is to make all this racialization of our politics sound like it was actually Barack Obama's fault, that he was the one who had a quote-unquote a chip on his shoulder about race or about being black or about 
having an us versus them mentality in America. How did he, how did he work that? Right. This is a sort of a classic conservative thing. That conservatives are constantly, and, and Limbaugh does this, does this with Obama, constantly complaining that uh, whether it's liberals or African-Americans or both are, quote-unquote, playing the race card, right? And, that, of course, what, what, what he's saying or what he means by that is that somebody like Obama, for example, is pointing out examples of racial discrimination or pointing out structural racism or something, something along those lines. And what, the, what Limbaugh um, is trying to do there is undercut the ability of people to point out or to, you know, to offer you know, um, important social criticism by saying, well, you know, the real problem with race in America is that people keep talking about race as opposed to the problem of America being that there's racism and that people who have, have, you know, have, to, who have to point, that, people have to point out that racism in order to draw attention to it and try to correct it. It's essentially sort of blaming the victim. Uh, and that's what he did. He, anytime Obama would start, you know, um, would mention anything, uh, you know, whether he was talking about uh, disparities in the criminal justice system, let's say, for example, and in relation to um, Henry Louis, Henry, arrest of Henry Louis Gates, the Harvard professor who was arrested in his own house and, President Obama started talking about about the fact that well you know there's a reason why African Americans or Hispanic Americans are uh, uh, concerned about, about police because there is you know X Y and Z disparities in the way they're treated. Limbaugh says, well look at him, he's bringing up the race card. If it, you know if if it wasn't for all these these radicals talking about race, we wouldn't have a problem of racism. Well, that's a way of drawing attention away from the reality of of the racial disparities, and that's a, a sort of a classic misdirection. That Limbaugh likes to engage in. It's, it's, it, you know, everything would be fine if we just wouldn't talk about it. Um, and of course, that would give Limbaugh not much to talk about, but so. You know. <laughs> and then taking it a step further with Limbaugh, um, you actually, you raise the question, is Rush Limbaugh a racist in your book? And then you go on to actually say, it probably doesn't even matter whether he is actually personally a racist or not. Tell us about that. Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, you know, is he a, is he a true believer? You know, does he go home at night? Or, or, on the other hand, does he go home at night and say, boy, you know, I really hate those things that I'm saying on, TV, on, on radio today, but uh, I've, got to make my, I've got to make my listeners happy so I can make my money. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because the effect of what he says is the same. The effect of what he says is to uh, uh, heighten the flames of, of hate in America. Uh, and his purpose in doing so, I, I mean, I, I, I will say, I think, I think his purpose in doing so is to, is, is to um, have, a, have an enter, a career in entertainment, right? I mean, I don't think that's his primary purpose. But his, certainly, I think his secondary purpose is to help elect Republicans. And he has come to believe and recognizes the, the reality that uh, the Republican Party is, in many ways, uh, reliant on white racial anxiety. It certainly has been for the last 20, 25 years, uh, and, and longer, going back to Nixon and the Southern strategy, certainly. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's, it's not about what's in your heart. It's about what comes out of your mouth, right, and the effect that that has. And so that's why I, I argue that his intentions really don't matter. Um, certainly, it's the effect that matters. So uh, recently, Trump had uh, awarded Tiger Woods the high, nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And you talk about in your book uh, about how Limbaugh uh, had uh, made comparisons between Obama and Woods in what you describe as a highly, uh, quote, racialized and sexualized way. Can you elaborate on how that fit into his overall method of demonizing Obama? Right. I mean, I, I have to say, you know, there wasn't 
uh, there weren't that many things that surprised me in reading the book, excuse me, in reading the Limbaugh transcripts, but the attention he paid to Tiger Woods really was one of them. And, and, and the, the fact that he connected Woods and Obama was really, frankly, strange and surprising. But uh, I'll just give you a couple of examples, and I'll go through them quickly. Okay, so this is Limbaugh on December 18, 2009. The parallels between Barack Obama and Tiger Woods are stunning. We don't know if there's rampant sex romps going on with Obama. We doubt that. But everything okay. else, but everything else, we don't know who he is. We don't know anything about the man other than his years agitating the community in Chicago, the things he's written about in his books, end quote. So, I mean, you could see Limbaugh's painting Obama as, as a guy with secrets. He's definitely kind of a shady character. And uh, because Obama is like, you know, like Tiger Woods, another multiracial, light-skinned black guy, you know, and if if Tiger Woods is having affairs with white women, well, then clearly, you know, maybe, you know, he can hint at, 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 at Obama you know, doing the same sort of stuff. And he covers himself. He says, you know, he says, we doubt that. But it doesn't matter. He's already teased the possibility that, that isn't, you know, he's encouraging his listeners to wonder whether Obama is having these kinds of sex romps. But, and it, and it, it's ridiculous, and we can laugh about it. But, of course, it's really disgusting. And it's more than that. It's, it's dangerous. You know, he's drawing on this incredibly hateful a racist trope that we have had in our history, this idea of the sexually aggressive black man, you know, who pursues white women. And, and this has, is something that we've seen has, has brought out fear and rage and violence, right? I mean, going back to 1955 and the murder of Emmett Till, right? right? He was murdered for, for uh, looking a little too long at a white woman, supposedly. Uh, and, 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 oh, there's no way that Rush Limbaugh doesn't know what he's doing when he, when he talks about Obama in this way. I, I don't think there's any way he doesn't know, frankly. I think I think that's a, a very very important point that this is not that is not a throwaway line that is not something that he said by accident it's not a verbal gaffe these things are as far as I can tell and from listening to them and as far as I can tell from reading your book these are these are done by design right absolutely absolutely this you know Limbaugh knows what he's doing right he doesn't uh, he doesn't come up with this Tiger Woods thing off the t- you know off the cuff. Uh, he strikes me as somebody who's very well prepared um, and who knows, uh, who knows how to push the buttons of the people that uh, he wants to push. You don't get to the top of the, of the radio business as he has been for you know, decades now without knowing what you're doing and without knowing how to bring people back day after day after day. And he, and he went back to that Tiger Woods thing on more than one occasion. Um, this was, I mean, to, and to remind you know, your listeners, this was back when the period when Tiger was having his own marital issues and, and was uh, caught with, uh, in some kind of extramarital affair. Um, and, I mean, that's not the only example, is my point. Right. And we are, fortunately, we're going to be able to talk about this a little bit more in person, right? You and I are uh, going to have a conversation about this. So if you are listening, by the way, and you are interested in this book, The Tribalization of Politics, How Rush Limbaugh's Race-Baiting Rhetoric on the Obama Presidency Paved the Way for Trump, you can hear Ian Rafowitz. He's the author uh, and I having a conversation about this coming up on June 5th at 7 p.m. We're going to be at Barnes & Noble right here in Union Square in beautiful New York City. Hope you will join us then. And I'm uh, looking forward to that, Ian. I'm really looking forward to it. And I want to thank you again, Celeste, for joining me there and for having me here as well. So as we wrap up, because we're going to go to another guest in a moment, I just do want to point out something Celeste informed me about <laughs> before we started the show, which was that you had been a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. 
Yes, that's true. <laughs> oh, but see, the good can we leave it at that? Or well, no, because, no, because you know I can never leave it alone. Because I thought the best part of that story it wasn't about the money that you won, and you were a very good contestant. You you made a lot of uh, wise choices, but you were allowed to bring a guest with you to the program. And who did you bring to the program, Ian? I brought my grandmother, and uh, <laughs> and I, and she's the only reason I was on that show because. Um, Funny, funnily enough, I had never watched it, uh, <laughs> but she bugged me every day. She goes, you should call and get on that show. You know a lot of things. I said, okay, okay. So I started calling, and then I was lucky enough to get on the show. And I paid off my student loans, which was the best part. <laughs> and, you know, and if you won, we would have been saying, can you just give us the final 2500 to help us meet the More Than Mike's campaign today? Exactly, exactly. Every, <laughs> sure. Every dollar helps. So, uh, Ian Rafewitz, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at, at, uh, at Ian Reifowitz, and also you can catch my writing at Daily Coast. I'm a contributing editor there, and I have a front page post every Sunday. Okay, Ian, thank you so much for joining us today here on Driving Forces, and I will see you at Barnes & Noble on June 5th. Absolutely, and thanks again, guys. Thank you. So you've been listening to Driving Forces with me, Jeff Simmons, and Celeste Katz here on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So as we get our next uh, guest on the line, Celeste, you were going to mention uh, about a premium that we have for people today. Yeah, actually, if you enjoyed that conversation, and seriously, this is a very, very interesting book uh, that we were just speaking to uh, Ian Reifowitz about. It's called The Tribalization of Politics, How Rush Limbaugh's race-baiting rhetoric on the Obama presidency paved the way for Trump. You can get a copy of this book. We will send it to you as thanks for your pledge of $50. $50. So all you have to do is call 516-620-3602. 516-620-3602. This is a brand new book that is uh, just coming out right now, and we are going to be talking about it in person on June 5th at Barnes & Noble in Union Square. But uh, some of the research here is really, really astounding. Ian is a guy who took time to, as he said, read through literally every transcript of every show. And he really, really takes apart how Rush Limbaugh sort of sets up this us versus them racial trope-filled mentality that sets things up for essentially what becomes the Trump presidency. He's, as he said, when he started working on the book or started thinking about the book in 2015, he did not expect Donald Trump to actually become president, as I'm sure many of us who are, uh, who are here today thinking about it did not either. So if you want to get a copy of this book, but uh, do it in a way that helps us out here at Listener Supported, Commercial Free WBAI, 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602. So we think about the country that we're living in right now and all of the uh, controversial issues that seem to be taking place across the country. The one that we talked about a little at the beginning of the show is what is going on in a number of states regarding uh, bans on abortions. And tomorrow marks 10 years since George Tiller had been assassinated in Wichita, Kansas, simply due to the fact that he gave women the right to choose. And empowered by the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that made abortions legal in every state, he'd gone on to become an expert, and he performed abortions on women facing devastating circumstances such as fetal anomalies uh, later in the pregnancies. 
And he also helped find homes for babies that women who uh, wanted to be put up for adoption. Uh, but his work had coincided with political and cultural shifts that endangered the lives of doctors and staff members at abortion clinics. So think, you know, fast forward now, 10 years later, uh, to what we are seeing going on in our country. And, you know, the news this week in Alabama, for instance, the near total ban on abortions that was signed into law. So we thought we wanted to talk about this on the show today. And we've invited on uh, Dr. Diane Horvath. She's an OBGYN in Maryland and a fellow with Physicians for Reproductive Health. She's one of the many abortion providers who've experienced an increase in anti-abortion harassment over the last year. Dr. Horvath, welcome to Driving Forces. Thank you so much. So as we talk about this anniversary, what are many providers facing across this country at this time? Well, I think that the National Abortion Federation report really lays it out. Uh, There's been a real increase uh, in harassment at clinics, so both harassment of people coming in and out of the clinics for care and also of the staff. So I think we've all felt it, and it's it's vindicating to see the numbers, but also really troubling. What's so amazing about that is when I looked at that report earlier today, there was this one statistic. I think it was 100,000 incidents of picketing uh, that had gone on, uh, which was exceeding every other year uh, since the statistics started getting uh, tabulated in 1977. I mean, it's amazing to think of that. You know, What are some of the other types of incidents we're hearing about? Well, I think the report uh, notes trespassing, and that's a legal term, but what that actually means in practical talk is that these are people who come to the clinic, uh, they, they come around the clinic often to the private property, but also sometimes inside the clinic into the waiting room for the express purpose of causing trouble. Um, we're also seeing a lot more online harassment and things like hate mail. So, Doctor, for you, as, as somebody who is involved in this and is exposed to, to that kind of harassment, how has it changed your experience of, of doing your job, of going to work every day, of seeing patients? What has this been like in terms of trying to stay away from or ignore or uh, survive these kinds, of, uh, these kinds of harassing forces? So this is an exacerbation of a longstanding problem. So most clinics and most providers, uh, because this has been a fact of life for us for a long time, have put into place some of the recommendations uh, from organizations like the National Abortion Federation, which help keep our clinic staff and our patients safe. Um, So we're always putting the safety of our patients and staff at the forefront. And I just want to go to work and do my job. I just want to take care of people who need abortions. And I think um, this kind of hypervigilance that we have to have is um, really stressful and, and I think contributes to burnout. Why do, you, why do you see, I mean, I feel like I'm asking an obvious question, but I'm really curious, you know, why you're, you feel people and groups are feeling much more emboldened now uh, to trespass, to picket? I think that legislators are emboldened certainly by the makeup of the Supreme Court um, tilting towards conservatives, but I don't think that that is what brings more people outside the clinic or gets us more hate mail. I think that the lies and the really violent rhetoric that's being thrown around by uh, this administration, by various politicians and advocacy groups, um, anti-choice groups, I think that that absolutely inspires people to violence. And what would you say or what do you say to patients uh, who who may visit 
your clinic, another clinic may seek these type of services or or additionally to people who may visit a clinic for wellness care or an STD screening, something that has nothing to do with uh, an abortion procedure. How do, how do you advise them to prepare for the experience of maybe being screamed at or harassed or, or otherwise mistreated on the way in or out of the appointment? So we've been really lucky in my clinic and in, uh, in, you know, in Maryland in general that the state legislature here recognizes our ability to provide compassionate evidence-based care to patients. And so we actually are pretty well protected by laws we're protected by the fact that our clinic is um, set back from the road a little bit. And so when people come in, the only protesters that they can kind of pass are the people who are out on the main highway. So we're pretty lucky. We do warn people when they make their appointment not to engage with any protesters that they might see. And other places that have protesters that are more kind of immediately close to the clinic often have phenomenal clinic escorts that are volunteers to help guide patients into the clinic and to shield them from some of the really terrible things that the protesters say. And have you ever had this? This may be sort of a random question, but I I am curious just because not everybody, as you say, is so fortunate as to be able to visit a clinic that has some protection from immediate direct face-to-face interaction with protesters or or people who are harassing patients have you ever had the experience where somebody came in and said based on what somebody just said to me or based on what just happened to me outside i have changed my mind about going undergoing this procedure i've worked in a lot in a number of different clinics in a number of different states And some did have people very close proximity to the entrance of the clinic. I have never, ever had someone come in and say, I'm not having my abortion today because protesters are outside. When people come to the clinic, they're almost always decided on what they want to do. And we give them options counseling. Everyone knows all of their options by the time they are, you know, finished with our counseling process. And I trust people to make their own decisions about their health care. I'm really curious based on the fact that what I do in my full-time job is I do PR and communications for nonprofits, and one of the nonprofits my colleagues work with is an organization that has talked about the need for more doctors uh, and dentists in certain communities where they're struggling to find uh, enough uh, folks to go through medical school. And I'm really curious, as as it seems like the tide is turning in a number of states, do you feel that looking ahead – there's going to be a struggle to find folks who want to take this on as a profession because they just don't want to deal with the harassment or the threats. I think this definitely has a chilling effect on people who would otherwise be interested in providing abortion care. The other thing to remember is that there's giant swaths of this country that already do not have abortion care providers or clinics that provide abortions. So You know, we talk about Roe versus Wade and talk about what would happen if it were overturned. But the fact is there are already huge portions of the United States for which Roe, the promise of Roe has never been realized. I think that's an important point. And if you're just joining us, by the way, you are listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Celeste Katz and Jeff Simmons here. We're talking to Dr. Diane Horvath. She's an OBGYN in Maryland and a fellow with Physicians for Reproductive Health. And uh, doctor, I was curious about 
what you see down the road for some of these states, we've talked about, uh, and I've written about, for example, uh, trigger laws that are being put in place by different states should there be uh, damage or an overturning even uh, of Roe versus Wade, that some states are quite literally waiting with bated breath to uh, change their laws to make it more difficult to undergo an abortion. Where do you see things sort of five or ten years from now? So I wish I had a crystal ball, and I'm also not a legal scholar. However, what we do know from high-quality evidence is that in places where abortion is more highly restricted or unavailable, there are worse health outcomes. So any bans at all on abortion um, are harmful to people who need abortions and people who can get pregnant. So I, I would anticipate that we would potentially see poor health outcomes. And as a physician, that really worries me. I'm just curious about it as well, because even beyond, say, uh, Donald Trump serves another term or perhaps is even defeated in his reelection attempt, he has already uh, shown one of his greatest legacies will be filling up the courts, packing the courts with a lot of conservative judges. Uh, those appointments will go on regardless of who is who is president. Correct. I, I think that one of the places I want to direct people's focus is some of the groups that are already doing the hard work of getting people to abortion care, sometimes outside of the state in which they live. So particularly groups that are led by women of color, by LGBTQ people, by young people, they're already on the ground organizing, fundraising, you know, getting people to appointments in other states or at the one clinic left in their state. I think that the importance of those groups is only going to increase. So, Dr. Horvath, in the uh, minute that, or two that we have left, you know, what is your uh, sense of what we're going to see happen tomorrow in Missouri? Because it looks like the judges, uh, the governor, I guess uh, the judge's decision will be tomorrow that could, uh, you know, a, a kill off the final uh, abortion clinic that is uh, in the Planned Parenthood clinic in Missouri. What are your expectations? What do you think will happen? Again, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I hope My hope is that uh, there might be some type of court action to keep the clinic open. But we know that these types of denials of license and these politically motivated restrictions are not based in medical evidence. And, you know, I think the Planned Parenthood in Missouri is a wonderful clinic. And I know some of the physicians who are there and they provide excellent care and they just want to do their jobs. They want to take care of the people that come to them. So uh, how can our listeners learn more about your work and uh, and uh, follow your progress? So I am on Twitter. My handle is G-Y-N and tonic, gin and tonic. Um, and then I would also direct people to uh, Physicians for Reproductive Health. They're, they're online and on Twitter and also groups like the National Network of Abortion Funds. Um, and We Testify, which is an abortion storytelling group. I think you can learn a lot about abortion care from the people who are having abortions and providing abortions. Diane Horvath, thank you so much for joining Celeste Katz and me here on Driving Forces. Thank you so much. And we're going to ask you, our listeners, to call in. Tell us what you think about either that conversation that we just had about the future of abortion rights or about the uh, conversation that we had earlier, which I thought was very interesting with the author, Ian Reifowitz, about the tribalization of politics in the United States and how we got to where we are thanks to people like Rush Limbaugh, who really sort of set up an us versus them mentality or an otherness mentality. 
in our politics. Give us a call. The number 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. We'd like to hear from you. Give us a call. 212-209-2877. And this is always James's favorite part of the show. <laughs> well, he's, he's staring at that phone <laughs> well that's one of the things though that's one of the things about our uh, more than mics campaign when we talk about asking for your support for the more than mics campaign it quite literally is about more than mics it literally is about the equipment that we have oh there it goes see okay we, we have we was have, that intentional right on, right on cue <laughs> perfectly there is there is some equipment here in the old wbai studio that is older than jeff and that is that is some old some old old equipment that the, that creaky noise that you heard is a a boom that holds up uh, the microphone that's being used by james our our engineer here you want to you want to give us a give us a sample james it's my favorite thing you know that yes okay so please Wow. Isn't that, isn't that gorgeous? Okay, so if you would rather hear just great news, public affairs, cultural, musical, activism programming, and not hear that noise, 516-620-3602. We are very close to b- finishing, finishing our new studio, which is very cool, has much better equipment, better phone lines, is soundproof. Maybe you heard some of the sirens earlier. We are almost at the finish line. Help us out. We appreciate Every bit of support, 516-620-3602, or just go to WBAI.org and support More Than Mics. And if you are listening would like to call in and weigh in on what our guests were saying or tell us what is on your mind, the number to call is 212-209-2877. Let us know what's on your mind. Now, something that also you should know, if you were donating today, you would be automatically entered, if I'm correct, into our you know contest or raffle. Yes. Uh, that you, uh, a listener, will be selected down the line uh, who will be able to sit in our new studio when it opens up with your favorite program. I'm kind of hoping, though, that it is, you know, when Celeste fills in at the 6 a.m. like tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a guest to bring you coffee. <laughs> you could you could technically technically choose, but you could choose from a lot of programs if you wanted to sit in with me, and I'll be sitting and sitting in. But I think of everybody probably, I'd sit in with James. James, so tell us about your program a little bit, because people might want to, this might be the moment where we get across the more than Mike's finish line. Listen to this man's voice. Do you not want to hang out with this man? Well, I will say first that uh, whoever is selected will first have to pass a bank of psychiatric tests. Like Celeste and I obviously did not have did to. Not, did not. Did no, not. No, they will uh, They will just let anybody in here apparently at the 5 o'clock hour on Thursdays. But again, text WBAI 41444. If you've ever thought about doing this, if you've been a, a BAI listener for a long time, maybe since you were a kid, maybe you listen uh, on your way to work, on your way home, maybe you listen to some of the fun programs, the relaxing programs on Saturday or Sunday. That brings me to another thing about Jeff. If you like BAI, you are literally our only form of support. We do not get a bunch of money from the government. We don't get a bunch of money from big business. We don't run a lot of commercials about 
you know, cars or, or apartments or real estate or any of those things, give us a call. Show your support. You are the reason that we are on the air and that you can listen to all these cool programs. 516-620-3602. 516-620-3602. We are thankful for every bit of support. And I think we have somebody who wants to uh, let us know about it. Uh, hey, so... You are on the air. This is WBAI. What's your name? Where are you from? And why do you love this program so much? Well, uh, my name is Emmanuel, and I'm calling from Brooklyn. Hi, and man. I'm just uh, tapped into, because it seems as if this uh, abortion issue is the issue of the day. And um, I don't know. For some reason, it seems to me that the people on the, the so-called people, progressive people, or the people on the left, are constantly jumping through hoops that are set up for us to jump through, the emotional hoops, legal hoops, legislative hoops. And it seems that um, this issue now about the abortion and the abortion rights thing, I mean, we know that this is being done cynically to, to push issues that are emotional issues, pretty much. Of course, they come down to the rights of, of, of people, both men and women, to decide what to do with their own bodies, but these still are emotional issues that are being pushed. Um, me personally, I think that more focus should be put on actual birth control and trying to get birth uh, control into the communities that are suffering from, I mean, technically speaking, we shouldn't even have as many abortions as we have because people should be using safe sex. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I, and, I'm, and I don't mean that to be prudish or whatever, but nobody's focusing on that. Everybody's focusing about um, whether or not people have the right to do what they want to do with their own bodies. That I do believe. But at the mm -hmm. same time, there's a real on-the-ground issue of why are we having so many abortions? Why are more young people being taught about um, safe sex, not to use birth control, to be funding? Because this is not going to go backwards. There's a, there's a trend in this right. country towards the right. And it, 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 all of a sudden, we're getting towards uh, Roe versus Wade and overturning that. What's going to happen when it's illegal to have an abortion? That's a that's a really good question. And thank you, Emmanuel, for your call. If you want to uh, weigh in on this as well, here's the number again, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. Do you think this country is headed towards having even more states where there is not even one, one functioning clinic where somebody can undergo an abortion procedure? Or do you think that this is just going to be limited to certain states, certain part of the country? Do you think voters will prevent this from happening? Do you think those legal challenges will end up falling by the wayside, even if they are, even if they are brought to courts? What do you think? 212-209-2877. You're listening to Driving Forces, and we had a guest on just earlier talking about the future of uh, reproductive rights in the United States. And earlier than that, again, we had uh, Ian Reifowitz, the author, talking about his book, which you can get a copy of for supporting WBAI. Of course, that book is The Tribalization of Politics, How Rush Limbaugh's Race-Baiting Rhetoric on the Obama Presidency paved the way for Trump. I thought it was striking to me. He said, you know, 2015, when he started researching that book, 
he wasn't really thinking that Donald Trump was going to become president. Were you thinking in 2015 that Donald Trump was going to be president? Do you see a clear path from where we were then to where we are now? Give us a call, 212-209-2877. So uh, in the few minutes that we have left, I do want to ask you about tomorrow morning. What's going to take place? Oh, actually, tomorrow morning, well, I'll be sitting in... uh, for a special edition of Waking Up with Juliana Forlano, I will be sitting in for her. She will be back with you next week. And we're going to have a number of guests on that I'm really looking forward to. And in, oh, well, oh, all of a sudden, magically. Hold, maybe, hold, 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 please. I will tell you more about that. But right now, we have some guests here uh, on the line here who want to talk about today's program. I'm already getting excited about tomorrow's program. But for today's program, we have people on the line. So, WBAI, you are on the air. What's your name, where you're from, and why do you love this radio station? Um, I'm from New Jersey, uh, Essex County, New Jersey, and I love this station because it keeps me informed. Um, it's about about the latest topics that um, you guys just keep everything, all, all the information, and I love hearing it. Awesome. So what's on your mind today? Thank you. So I just wanted to comment on the a previous caller um, about the abortion, and he made a statement um, why... Um, why we're not talking about the preventative measure, measures of um, abortion. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a missing point that he's not, he's missing a point that some of, some of the preventative um, measures are not, it's not that they're not being spoke about, but then it leads back to lack of insurance, mm. right? So the people point. don't yeah. have the, they don't have the means to get the preventative measures like uh, birth control. He, he raised, why, well, why they just don't use birth control or some type of preventive measure? Well, there's no insurance there. That's which a really, is another really big point. issue that, you know, it's not that the people, um, the younger generation, well, I shouldn't say any generation, but it's not that the generation doesn't, that they're being reckless. It's another issue. I think that's a, an excellent point that you're making. That's something that, that we could get into. Even Look, we could do a whole show. Maybe one day we will do a whole show on that, as a matter of fact. And I think that it's a, a really good point to make that there are some people who have uh, found themselves working, for example, for for organizations that do not want to cover mm-hmm. contraceptive mm-hmm. services on the grounds of religious objections. So it's really not an equal playing field for everyone. So good good point there. Thank you, caller. And I think we have time for one more. We have time for one more caller. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name? Thank Where you. are you from? Uh, and- thank you for taking the call. I'll try to be as brief as possible. Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to say this. Uh, thinking outside of the box, you know, the population and that is white population of this country is diminishing year after year after year. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there is always a quest to conquer a new country to uh, or uh, acquire their natural resources, and you need men for that. Men do not give birth, okay? They do not bear children, but women do. So if the women are allowed to control their bodies, mm-hmm. and they choose not to have a child for whatever reason, that means that the rate of men will diminish even faster. 
okay that's a I never thought of it that way. I've got to be. I got to be honest with you. I think that the 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 takeaway there probably for for me at least. I don't know. You can disagree with me, but I think the idea here is that ultimately this is a discussion in some regard to women being able to control their own bodies, make their own decisions. That is how about, I've always felt. Okay. So I think that, uh, I also don't want to get in any arguments with you. No, 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 you do, no, do it tomorrow <laughs> when I'm on the air from 6am to 8am sitting in for Juliana Forlano at waking up. So thank you to our guests. I think we are about there. And thank you of course, to our engineer, James. Thank you, James. Danada. And I just want to remind our listeners, just next week, uh, no, no, yeah, next week you will be, Celeste will be at Barnes & Noble on June 5th from 7 to 8 with our author interviewing him. That's the Barnes & Noble in Union Square on East 17th Street. And I want to remind you to tune in for Jeff's super ultra awesome Pride special this Sunday, June 2nd from... 11 a.m. till 3, but then we have ongoing Stonewall Pro and World Pride programming going on with Radio uh, Gays Against Guns and Out FM to 6 o'clock. One of my guests just lined up today, uh, former Congressman Barney Frank. Do not miss it. Thanks for listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM New York. We'll be back with you next week. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBAI, we have the WBAI Evening News with Paul Rianzo. At 6.30, we have Justice Matters with Bob Ganchi, followed at 7 by We Won't Go Back, Women Fight Back with Rachel Salang. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders of The Laura Flanders Show, which airs Saturdays at 6.30 p.m. here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The Left Forum is right around the corner, and they've generously donated weekend passes to WBAI listener supporters who make a $50 pledge in support of the station during our May membership drive. I've had the pleasure of hosting many panels at the Left Forum over the years, and this year I'm doing it again. I'll be hosting the plenary on Saturday night, all about the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, and a session with Chris Hedges and Rick Wolf on Lenin as one of our important writers. Come meet me, Laura Flanders, at the 2019 Left Forum and be part of the conversation on radically imagining different presents and futures. Make a pledge of $50 today and lock in your weekend pass to the forum taking place in Brooklyn, June 28th through June 30th. That's June 28th through the 30th in Brooklyn. Go to give, then the numeral 2, wbai.org. That's give to wbai.org and search left forum. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening. See you at the forum. I just can't tolerate Join Sweet Honey in the Rock as they celebrate a milestone in a career of deeply rooted songs that inspire generations. 
Sweet Honey and the Rock highlight the Blue Note Jazz Festival Friday, June 7th at Sony Hall in Manhattan. How sweet it is. Mark your calendars for a special event with Tom Hartman, that's me, and WBAI's Leonard Lopate on my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Don't miss the brutal role guns have played from the enforcement of slavery, Native American genocide, to post-Civil War racism, and the solutions we can put into place now to stop gun violence in America. It's Saturday, June 8th from 7 to 9 p.m., $40, plus you get a free book. Come hear me interviewed by Leonard Lopate. The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment at the Commons, 388 at Atlantic Avenue in New York City. A $40 ticket will include the event and a book. There'll be a Q&A afterwards, so bring your questions. Get your tickets at give2wbai.org. That's give2wbai.org. And you can also call to get tickets at 516-620-3602. That's give2wbai.org. Or call 516-620-3602.